Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and public figures to get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is Jeffrey White. Dr. White has served on the IU faculty for 34 years, and he holds a number of titles, which is fitting considering the interdisciplinary nature of his work. He is professor of environmental science in the School of Public and Environmental Affairs and a professor of earth and atmospheric sciences in the College of Arts and Sciences at IU Bloomington. Jeffrey White is founding director of IU's Integrated Program in the Environment. It's a campus-wide program that combines education and research in environmental sciences and sustainability studies, gathering more than 100 faculty members, 25 departments, and five schools, all under one umbrella. He's also been an associate dean and a department chair, but none of these administrative duties have ever been able to keep Jeffrey White out of the field for long. And yes, I mean that both figuratively and literally, because Jeffrey White's research focuses on understanding the effects of human activity on ecosystems, both on land and in water. Since 1990, he's studied the emissions and the cycling of greenhouse gases in northern landscapes, far northern landscapes. He studied thawing permafrost in the remote Alaskan Arctic, and for about the past 10 years, he's been heading up a NASA-funded project studying the lakes, wetlands, and soils at the edge of the Greenland ice sheet. And his research has yielded some sobering data about global climate change. Arctic environments are warming at an unprecedented rate, twice as fast as other regions of the world. Jeffrey White has seen the effects of that warming up close and personal. Recently, Dr. White joined me in the WFIU studios to share more about what he found in the extreme environments of the remote Arctic. Jeffrey White, welcome to Profiles. Thank you for having me. I want, first of all, to understand your title because there's a lot going on in it, biogeochemist. So what does that mean exactly? Break that down for me. Well, it contains all the elements of the science I do. The science I do is, in fact, a synthetic science. We bring together fundamental principles of chemistry, biology, and earth science geology to make sense of what's happening on the earth's surface. And in my particular case, I'm interested in how human forces, if you will, affect the functioning of Earth's systems. So it requires chemistry, biology, physics, geology to come together to make sense of those complex interactions. Now, do you find that that speaks of a trend that's happening in the sciences as time progresses, that we need to incorporate what we might have previously thought of as different disciplines together so that we can do the science? We have to kind of change some of these names and mash together these skill sets? Absolutely. And, and I would say it's broader than maybe how you presented it. I think it's not just the sciences. It covers the entire academy. I think many disciplines are looking at the need to bring together multiple disciplines, multiple perspectives to make sense of the complex problems that exist oftentimes in the gaps between traditional disciplines. I think that's happening across the academy. So certainly in the sciences, but not just the sciences. Now, if I'm not mistaken, uh, you've also been given a title not too long ago that is even more impressive 
than the amalgamated biogeochemist. Is it true that you are a protector of the planet, according to NASA? <laughs> well, my colleague, Lisa Pratt, is, uh, is the real protector of the planet. So she, she is one of my closest research colleagues here at Indiana University. We've worked together for years. And she was recently hired away by NASA to become the planetary protection officer for the Earth. So I would say she's the protector of the planet. Yeah. But you're the one who still works here. She gets to go off to NASA. That's right. That's right. But I, I certainly could not claim that turf. I think it's wonderful that I've had a chance to work with her over a number of years on big sort of planetary questions for Earth. But I would never claim to have the breadth of understanding to be able to do the job that she's doing. So before we talk about what about Earth needs protecting as far as it intersects with your life and your career, I wondered if we could go back a little bit further. I'm always struck when I speak to people in the sciences of their stories about how it began, the thing that hooked them into this field. And of course, your profession encompasses several different aspects of science, several different disciplines. Was there something that hooked you in first? And if so, when did that happen? Well, I think for me, like many people, I think attracted to science, it began in my childhood with a curiosity about the natural world that was right out my back door. So I was fortunate to grow up in a house that was on the edge of a woodlot, a woodland, and it was my escape from some of the tensions of, uh, of the household to go out in the woods and just poke around, interest in what was under logs and rocks and why things were the way they were out there in the natural world. I can't even think of when that began, but certainly in my childhood. Then when I started thinking about college and academic pursuits, biology attracted me very strongly. So I began in traditional biology, and as that journey started to unfold, I, I started with this idea that I would be in the medical sciences. And part of that was just the influence of the community I was in and the mentors I had, my parents and others. This was what they thought of as the path for someone interested in biology at that time. It didn't take me long in college to realize that my heart was really more focused on how biological systems work beyond just humans. And uh, I had a mentor in college, an invertebrate zoologist, who was so enthusiastic about understanding the nuances of how organisms in the soil or in water actually interacted with each other, how, what their functions were. So that became this really strong draw for me to get into applied sciences, how organisms interact with plants, other organisms on the landscape. And at the time, it was around the Earth Day movement, he had suggested that there are opportunities that are coming for scientists who are interested in interactions, ecology, young field at the time. So that's how I began into this. And as I moved out of undergraduate work, the research bug bit me early and uh, started to look at research opportunities that tapped into my interest in biology. And as I moved in that direction in environmental science, I realized I couldn't just bring my biological skills to make sense of natural processes and human forces that were at work in affecting those. I needed, I needed chemistry. I needed engineering. I needed geological sciences. 
all those pieces put together helped to understand what was happening. So that's sort of the academic track that I've pursued was one, starting in traditional science and then adding on these other components as I moved into graduate school. I hope you won't find it cute of me to say so, but just sounds like over time you found out that your career was an ecosystem. Well, I think that's quite appropriate, yeah. It reflects the realities of ecosystems and how they function. They can't be compartmentalized, right? Their interaction is the name of the game. It's This is how these systems really operate. So, yeah, you do need to, if you're interested in advancing our understanding of the complexities of those systems, you have to be open to, first of all, tooling yourself up, but then I would add collaborating. Collaboration is, I think, a key component to doing that kind of science. You've mentioned your research and being bit by the research bug. I'm wondering if in your teaching at the college level, you find these days that students coming to you already have a well-developed concept of what you've just spoken about, the interdependence of systems and about the importance of collaboration. Or is this something that you find you have to teach them in order for them to really crock it and really move forward with it in their own careers? It varies. Uh, I think some students are exposed to those ideas and are comfortable with those ideas by the time they come to the university. But there are many who followed a track similar to mine, where their experience as a child and up through high school was very much disciplinary in its focus. And it was really the problem, a passion for the problem, sort of the social problem even, that attracts them to the more applied sciences. They want to do something of value with their basic science experience and enthusiasm. And so they are attracted to environmental sciences from that perspective. But it doesn't take long for them to realize that they too need to sort of tool up in other areas of the sciences and the social sciences and humanities as well to be able to bring some value to these challenges that we face. It seems to me that in a relatively short amount of time, the motivations for getting into this have changed. If I understand correctly, your mentor revealed to you how, you know, there's important things that are afoot here that can be done if we take science in this direction and if you are on the ground floor. Whereas now students, it seems, are coming to you saying, I want to do important things. Would you agree that that's something that's different from when you were learning, when you were coming up in the sciences versus now? Absolutely, yeah. I was on that building wave associated with the Earth Day movement in the 70s, this rapid development of energy around understanding how humans were affecting the natural world in negative ways. The students today are learning that preschool, right? I mean, this is the dialogue in many communities about issues that are maybe important locally. It may reach broader scales for young people, but they certainly reach the level of the university having been exposed to a lot of these conversations about environmental impact and how do we protect ourselves and other organisms and things like the loss of biodiversity, even at a local level, climate change effects on them personally or their communities. Those things are things that I think many students these days are exposed to at a young age. Biogeochemist Jeffrey White 
Professor of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences in the College of Arts and Sciences at IU Bloomington. Jeffrey White and his team of researchers have been studying greenhouse gas emissions in northern landscapes under changing climate. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Do you recall your first field work, the first time you went out, actually rolled up your sleeves and <laughs> maybe put on some waders and got out and did field work in this in this field? Mm-hmm. Well, if it was field work that was associated with an academic enterprise as opposed to my own personal journey, the field work began at the very beginning, of course. I didn't know I was doing science at that time. I was just exploring what was out my back door. That was field work for me. It was good foundational pieces for then engaging in funded research in college and the university. But my first really big long-term commitment to field work began when I was a master's student. And I was working actually in environmental engineering at the time. So when I came out of biological sciences, I went into environmental engineering for my master's degree. And that involved extensive field work measuring contaminant levels in streams associated with large landfill operations in New Jersey, where I was going to graduate school, and also exploring how technological approaches to treating wastewater were effective or ineffective by looking at downstream chemical and biological changes. So that was my first big foray into serious field work, and I loved it. I just sensed right away that this is the kind of science I want to do, whether it's direct contamination of, uh, of a water stream or a water supply. That then evolved into some other interests that were larger scale. But yeah, those were the formative years when I was out there collecting the samples, bringing them back to the laboratory, engaging with my colleagues at trying to figure out which things needed to be measured, designing the strategy for continuing that data, collection, but also making sure the quality of the information was good. All those skills were developed uh, in my first few years in graduate school. So then let's move on to issues of a larger scale, as you put it. Tell me about the first time you went to the Arctic. Mm. Well, the invitation to get involved in that work came from our planetary protection officer, Lisa Pratt. (laughs) She had the office next to mine. I was uh, fortunate to move into a new multidisciplinary science building on the Indiana University campus, and my next-door neighbor was Lisa Pratt. And I'll never forget the day she walked in my office and said, Jeff, there's a new program at NASA that we should submit a proposal to see if we can get funded to work on. And it would involve going to Greenland, and it would involve measuring greenhouse gases in Greenland landscapes. And that was 10 years ago. And we submitted the proposal thinking we didn't have a whole, you know, a real good chance, but we were funded. And that was the launch of the Greenland Project, which really transformed the science that I do, opportunities that have been some of the best I've ever had in my career. What's it like up there? And not a lot of people have been there. It's a unforgiving, austere place, but also a beautiful place, I'm sure. So what about the first time you landed? I also want to know, and I think this is important given the work that you've done, 
what changes you've seen in those 10 years. Mm -hmm. So take us back to the first time the plane touches down in Greenland. Before the plane touches down, your face is plastered to the window as you fly across the North Atlantic and you begin to come close to the Greenland coast and you're seeing below you all these little white specks in the water, pieces of ice coming off the glacier. It's The Greenland ice sheet is the second largest ice sheet in the world after the Antarctic ice sheet. The first thing you encounter as you approach Greenland is parts of that ice sheet floating out in the water. And initially it's, it's a little unsettling because you don't quite realize what all that those little specks of white are. And as you get lower, as you approach the the coast of Greenland, and they're beginning to start their descent, you realize those are massive icebergs that have calved off the Greenland ice sheet. So my first time into Greenland was during summer, where that lots of activity of iceberg calving off the Greenland ice sheet. And then as you cross the, the coast, approaching the airport, you begin to see the landscape itself. And of course, on the edge of Greenland, it's ice-free. And the landscape, as you describe, is austere. The population density is extremely low for this country. So you don't see people or towns or anything. It's just barren. That's, I think, an unfortunate term. It's actually quite vibrant with life. Um, but it looks sort of barren compared to what we're used to seeing. And we uh, approach this long fjord as the primary approach to the airport. And you're flying right down the center of this fjord, massive fjord, and then land on a two-mile runway that was actually a military runway during World War II. So it's a very large runway system for a very sparsely populated country. It's an exciting scene when you land there and realize that you're in a place that very few people get to see. Were some of the only other people you saw other researchers and other projects? So the primary airport that you fly into, as I said, Historically, it was built by the Air Force that both the Danish and the American Air Forces collaborated there in maintaining an airfield during World War II. It's been converted over to commercial aircraft as well as military. So both military and commercial share the same airport. So the population there in Kangerlussuaq, that's the name of the town, is composed of people who are supporting the airport operation both the local Inuit population as well as Danes who have moved and set up their homes there, and then scientists coming and going. So it's the primary point into Greenland for all uh, flights, and then from there you can take smaller planes or helicopters out to the out villages or up to the summit station at the top of the Greenland ice sheet, which is a major scientific research station, international scientific research station, doing ice coring of the ice sheet to reconstruct Earth's climate history. That's been going on for many years. And so the airport serves as the staging area for the scientists going up to the ice sheet. There are also scientists like myself working on the edge of the ice sheet on the exposed landscape, trying to understand what's happening with those landscapes as the Arctic warms. So yes, so it's a combination of locals who are there associated with the airport and the business that brings and then the scientists that are coming and going from the ice sheet year-round. So it's a, a year-round activity.
You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. My guest is Jeffrey White, professor of environmental science in the School of Public and Environmental Affairs and a professor of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences in the College of Arts and Sciences at IU Bloomington. For the past 10 years, Dr. White has gone on several expeditions to the edge of the Greenland ice sheet to study greenhouse gas emissions in the lakes, wetlands, and soils of the Arctic. So you and your team, you go inland to the edge of the exposed land where it meets the ice sheet and you set up shop. So walk me through the experiments that you've done over the past 10 years, perhaps starting with the first. Well, the first campaign uh, was a summer campaign that was really mostly focused on getting a sense of the landscape and the logistical challenges of trying to set up measurement systems in the field up there. And we were really thinking in terms of both summer and winter measurements. So we were initially just trying to get a sense of what the possibilities were, what the limitations were of doing this kind of science in that landscape. So there was not a lot of measurements being done that first year. We were just trying to work out. You're getting the lay of the land, so to speak. Literally, the lay of the land, exactly. The setup was great. It is great. Some of the old Air Force barracks buildings have been converted to science support by the National Science Foundation. You stay there. It's actually very comfortable accommodations. And we're typically in there for two to six weeks at a time. And uh, you're living out of a facility that's much like a dormitory facility with kitchens and bathrooms and so on. So it is, it's not like the challenging conditions of working in the Antarctic. McMurdo yeah. Station is becoming pretty well known in the news because of all the science that goes on in the Antarctic. They live in tents. We live in, in nice Air Force barracks buildings that have been converted to science support. So we staged from there and then worked out the logistics of how do we get from, and it's right on the edge of the airfield. So then you have to get from the airfield up into field areas that are closer to the ice sheet, distance of about 30, 40 kilometers from the airfield to the ice sheet. So much of our time in that first year was just trying to figure out how do we get from the science support center up to these field areas? Um, What does that mean? What's possible in the wintertime? Talking to the locals who provide support services. So that's primarily what we did in the first year. Well, let's get into the nitty-gritty of it. So what are you measuring and what are you looking for from that point on? So our primary interests were to measure methane emissions from the landscape and from dry soils in upland areas through the transition to wetlands and lakes. There are hundreds of thousands of small lakes along the edge of the Greenland ice sheet and the wetlands associated with those. Our focus was on looking at methane production and methane cycling within those systems because methane is a very important greenhouse gas in Earth's atmosphere. And we don't understand well how warming of the Arctic might affect the rates at which methane is released from those landscapes. So the NASA project was primarily focused on studying the details of those biological, chemical, and physical processes that control the rate at which methane is produced on that landscape. 
Because I think when people are aware of methane now in the context of global climate destabilization, I think if anything, they're going to think of a feedlot, say, and then that might be what they know of. They probably don't think, first of all, of the Arctic. They don't think about how much, well, carbon, for example, about 35%, if I'm not mistaken, of the Earth's carbon is there under the permafrost. It's up in that part of the world, not coming out of your car's tailpipe. And right. I'm not sure that's really part of the popular consciousness yet. Even those who have an interest in being aware of climate change. That's true. And I think part of it is that human societies around the world are not concentrated in those landscapes for clear reasons. It's difficult to live in those environments. And we have chosen to develop most of our communities around the world in places that are more manageable in terms of environmental conditions. And yet, if you look at a globe, a lot of the landmass on Earth is in the northern hemisphere, and most of the landmass in the northern hemisphere is in these northern latitudes. So population densities are low, and so we don't tend to experience the day-to-day issues associated with those landscapes. But as you point out, they represent an enormous storage of carbon in those soils as a consequence of being cold for so long, right? So those soils are often frozen year-round, and they've accumulated a lot of organic material over many thousands of years. That environment's rapidly changing. So we're now activating those soils as a consequence of this warming, rapid warming in the Arctic, and essentially energizing that environment such that we're beginning to see emissions of these gases associated with that carbon that's stored in the soils. So you're getting ready to measure methane emissions, but you're doing so in bodies of water. We're not getting readings on carbon and permafrost, not on this particular trip. First, it's bodies of water. You're looking for the methane cycling. So what is methane cycling? It begins with the carbon that we talked about. That carbon, of course, is organic carbon, is a product of photosynthesis. So plants on Earth are making organic material, a structural material for their cells, stems, leaves, roots. That material is then accumulating in soil environment as the plants go through their life and death cycles. They're leaving behind residual plant material. That material accumulates in the soil. Year after year after year. Year after year after year. That carbon that was produced by plants is decomposed in the soil by a very complex set of microorganisms that are taking advantage of that organic material that was made by the plants. At the bottom of that food web, if you will, is the methane-producing microbes. So they, at the sort of end of that decomposition process, they're using fragments of that organic material from the plants, and their product that they produced is methane gas. So they're the microscopic cows in the feedlot. They are the microscopic cows. In fact, the similar organisms that are in the cow's gut that make methane in the cow are the same ones that are growing in these soil environments making methane. So the biology of that process is very similar if you go from the, the rumen of a cow to an Arctic soil. How'd you measure for this? Do you have to get out in boats on the lakes? And uh, what's your instrument for that? Yes, we had to get out on the lakes, and we 
used small inflatable boats because we were backpacking into these field sites. Uh, had to carry everything on our backs to get in into our areas where we were setting up our measurement systems. So from the side of the boat, you collect water samples throughout the depth of the lake, right into the sediments in the bottom, and you're extracting the methane from those different samples, whether it's water or mud at the bottom of the lake. And we did those right in the boats. We were able to transfer the methane from the water or the sediment samples directly into gas-tight containers and take them back to the field lab there at the edge of the airport and do measurements in the science support center. So we would have data at the end of the day on the concentrations of methane in the water column and the sediments and the soils. Pretty exciting, actually, to have almost real-time information to be able to adjust your strategies each day on what you were going to sample, how you were going to sample, maybe changes to the sampling schemes could be made on the fly, so to speak, as opposed to sending samples all the way back to Indiana University and waiting for who knows how long to get results from a laboratory here on campus. So that was one of the great advances of our project is we were able to make sort of game time decisions about how we were conducting the science. Can you imagine what it would have been like to try to ascertain these same things about 50 years ago Hmm. had you been going there? Because I bring it up because the story of scientific endeavor is so often, has so much change in it. You know, to be someone in a given field, you watch that field go through amazing transformations as the science changes and as technology changes. Seems like you guys had a leg up when you got there and that uh, a lot of these almost real-time results that you could get, allowing you to adjust your strategy on the fly was something that, am I correct, that that wouldn't have even been possible 50 years ago? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, just measuring methane at the levels that exist out there in the landscape would have been impossible 50 years ago for many of the types of samples we're measuring. Technology has dramatically changed the science I do, and that's true across many scientific disciplines. But one of the great changes, as you point out, is the ability to get useful information very quickly, which allows you, as I said, to change your strategy as you go. That immediate or near-immediate feedback really helps improve the efficiency of the science. It's expensive to do these campaigns in these remote environments, and the ability to change the plan as you go to improve the outcomes on a day-by-day basis dramatically improves the efficiency of producing quality information and, of course, lowers the cost for that. Technology for us really has dramatically changed the way I conduct the science I do. Even 10 years ago, I was doing these same kinds of measurements in other systems, and we had to wait two, three, four days before we'd get results from sample collections. And in many cases, We sat around looking at data and said, that was a complete waste of time. We need to go back and do it again and change the way we approach this. And that process of trial and error is changed by the technology these days. Contemplating how you can change on the fly because of what technology enables you to do (laughs) kind of leads me to a leading question and perhaps a a sobering setup, but were there times when you were looking at some of the readings for levels of greenhouse gases like methane and saying, whoa, wait a minute, that can't be right? 
that's pretty big. We've got to go back and double check that. Sure. Our biggest surprises on the Greenland project were during the winter campaigns. Our initial campaign was summer. The results from the Greenland systems looked very similar to results from other projects I had worked on further south. That in and of itself was a surprise. These are landscapes that are frozen, you know, three quarters of the year. Yeah, just because it's summer doesn't mean it's balmy. Exactly. And of course, these landscapes are frozen almost all year round, right? So they have these very brief periods of open water where the ice melts. And what surprised us in the first campaign where we were doing these measurements is, wow, we're seeing results similar to lakes that are far much further south that have far warmer conditions. So that was the first surprise. And again, with almost real-time data, we could see that that night when we went back to the, the research center. The winter campaign completely blew us away because we saw higher concentrations under ice. The ice up there on these lakes is about six feet thick by the time we get in there at the end of winter. And we assumed these systems are very cold. The landscapes are not particularly productive landscapes because their growing seasons are so short. And yet we were seeing methane production, methane concentrations under ice that that exceeded those that we saw in the summertime. Yeah, we did scratch our heads. Yeah, I'm going to raise my hand and say, how is that possible at this point? Yeah. Well, there's this comes back to the complexity of these environments and the interactions going on up there. Most of the methane's produced in the mud at the bottom of the lake and in the wetland soils around the edges. And those microbes are able to function even close to zero degrees, freezing temperatures. They're still active. They have evolved in this landscape over millions of years to be able to do their biology at very low temperatures. So I guess it shouldn't have surprised us that they were quite comfortable at zero degrees centigrade and were doing what they do and what they've always done. So they're producing methane. Now, the difference between summer and winter is that you've got six feet of ice on top of the lake, and that represents a barrier for escape of methane. So over the course of the winter, the methane production in those lakes is just building up under ice. So that's what led to the really high concentrations, the high storage of methane in these systems during the wintertime. But then the following summer, what happens? Well, as the ice goes off the lake during that transition from winter to summer, that methane is escaping to the atmosphere or is potentially being consumed by microbes who use methane as their energy source. They're called methane oxidizing bacteria. They're there and present in large numbers. That's a more recent finding from our project. So some of that methane is scoured out of the water column before it escapes to the atmosphere. So by the time we get there in the summer, the methane inventories in the water have been dramatically reduced, either by escape of methane to the atmosphere or by consumption by other microbes. Do we know yet what happens when there's sort of this shotgun blast of methane, uh, if, if that's even a correct metaphor? Because it seems like the release of methane in a high concentration in a relatively short time, that's that's got to do something. It's an area of pretty intense study right now, trying to understand what's happening in these transitions between seasons in the Arctic. We know now that the Arctic environment is a significant source of methane to Earth's atmosphere and that it, that source is changing rapidly. But you make a good point that it may be that a lot of that action 
is associated with small windows of time during the annual cycle. And because it's remote, it's hard to measure up there, we're missing an important part of the story because we're not there during those transitions. It's very difficult to get in and out during those transitions. And so a lot of those measurements have not yet been done. I think that's going to change rapidly as a consequence of technology, which we could talk about as well. Well, is that something you want to tackle now? Is that kind of on the list? It certainly is, yes. And again, when we start coupling technologies of different types together, we have, I think, another game-changing transition coming very soon. It's here really now. And that is to mount small instruments to unmanned aircraft and fly these environments any time of the year, year-round, to be able to measure losses of methane from these landscapes. We don't need to go in with the kinds of campaigns that we've been conducting over the last 10 years to get information on these critical periods of time in the, during the annual cycle. It's drones, it's miniaturization of technology, it's small laser-based instruments. That's gonna change the science, and it's already here. Jeffrey White, biogeochemist and professor of earth and atmospheric sciences at Indiana University. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. So let's talk about another sobering result that you studied, something that I was hoping that you could unpack the carbon feedback loop. Now, before you answer just that, I have a friend, an old friend of mine, a high school friend, actually. He's an ecologist now. He's a professor at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And he told me not long ago, if you don't ever want to sleep again, Google up clathrate gun hypothesis. So I'm wondering if you could talk about the carbon feedback loop. And do I have that right? Is that the same thing as the clathrate gun hypothesis? Or are these two different things that should be keeping us up at night either way. Well, I'm not sure I could say that they should keep you up at night. Sleep's important, (laughs) particularly when you're trying to deal with challenges, right? You know, clear-headedness is helpful. We need our rest. Uh, We need our rest for that. That's not my science, but I I do appreciate that at a personal level. I will say the the clathrite destabilization issue that you raise um, has similar kinds of feedback processes at work, but the destabilization of clathrates is a little bit different in that these are deposits of methane in deep sediments, deep soils, ocean environments, land environments, where the high pressure above them is keeping them stable. They're essentially frozen methane. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this is crystallized structures that have methane in them. And they're produced, again, over long geologic periods and are generally stable unless you have significant changes in the temperature of those environments and in the pressure above that can destabilize those crystal structures. That is happening. Whether we're going to have an explosion of methane from these deep clathrate deposits is, is an open question in science right now. There are campaigns out there 
ship-based campaigns in the Arctic looking at methane release rates from clathrites and trying to figure out what's the potential for this. There's a lot of uncertainty in that science. It's very difficult to do those measurements well. I don't want to downplay it. I think it is an important thing to keep an eye on. But there's this other phenomenon that is at work that's a little bit more insidious in that you've got this large landscape in the Arctic with lots of organic carbon, as we talked about, and the temperatures are rapidly warming. So the feedback that I'm interested in is that as those landscapes that are rich in organic carbon warm, that stimulates microbial activity, and that carbon then gets decomposed and released possibly as carbon dioxide or methane. And both are bad in terms of climate forcing, right? They're both greenhouse gases, but methane is about 25 times more effective in trapping heat in the Earth's atmosphere. This is another thing I don't think a lot of people think about because CO2, and you can debate how harmful CO2 is depending on who you talk to, but that's what you hear about more, I think, than methane. And I'm not sure people understand that methane is the real powerhouse when it comes to greenhouse gases. It is. And right now, as it currently stands, it's about a quarter, 20-25% of the current warming occurring in the Earth's atmosphere. Carbon dioxide is the, the larger portion of that. But the growth potential for methane is quite high as a consequence of the feedback I'm talking about. If it goes off its methane, it's going to cause warming at a faster rate per unit amount of gas released. And then it gets converted to CO2 later, you know, over a period of time, 10 years or so, it can get converted in the atmosphere. And so then it becomes an active greenhouse gas as carbon dioxide. So it starts out as methane, has a potent effect, and then it gets converted over time to CO2, which then contributes to the accumulation of carbon dioxide. So scientists working in these areas want to see if they can get right that amount of release, the rate at which it occurs, how much goes off as CO2 versus carbon dioxide. And those are the pieces of the puzzle that I'm trying to put together in the science that I do. So what's the elevator pitch then? What's the two-sentence description of that feedback loop? Because it sounds like a complex process with a frighteningly simple result. The elevator speech is that, as we've already set up, there's a large amount of organic carbon stored in these environments. Temperature stimulates the decomposition of that carbon. And the result will be increased rates of release of these two greenhouse gases, which will then stimulate a positive or multiplying feedback that the greater those gases concentrations in the atmosphere, the more warming, the more warming, the more gas production. So you have what's called a positive feedback. It's a self-reinforcing, multiplying feedback. That's the elevator speech. It's important. It's not in the current climate models that are used to project future climate. Or the legislation, if I'm not mistaken. Well, right. So the legislation, to the extent we do get that right, it should be coupled to the best science. That's an arguable point. The models that are being used for things like the Paris Accords do not have this Arctic carbon feedback built into the projections of future climate. So they don't take into account? They don't, not because they don't realize it's a potential part of it. They don't because the modelers don't have the information they need to build the mathematical 
tools to project that part of the story. The emissions story is well known for the modelers. They're able to predict the use of energy, how that affects carbon dioxide, different uses of fossil fuels versus other things that are, are used for energy production, uh, land clearance. Those things are factored into the models pretty well. But this carbon arctic feedback is not sufficiently, the science is not sufficiently robust for them to build that into their models. But just to be clear, and not to put too fine a point on it, according to the work that you've done in Greenland, this seems to be happening. Yes. Yeah. And there are, it's not just our work. This is work that's occurring across the Arctic. There are many investigators who've turned their attention to these issues and are trying to unravel this complex story. So the results are fairly consistent across a range of studies, and ours are not, certainly not unique. I think we've added some nuances to the understanding that others have not yet focused on. But in total, when you look at the information coming out of Arctic landscape research, there's no question that the increasing temperatures in the Arctic are leading to rapid conversion of stored carbon to atmospheric CO2 and methane, which are potent greenhouse gases. Either from your colleagues in other fields or through extrapolation, then, is this happening anywhere else outside the Arctic? I think of wetlands. You know, uh, we like wetlands. We conserve them. It's illegal to fill them. They're vital habitats. But are these sorts of methane feedback loops happening there as well? Yes, they are. Whether it's the northern temperate zone here in Indiana, or whether you go to the tropics, wherever you've got soil that's got carbon storage in it, and that carbon is warmed, particularly wet environments, that's where methane's produced under these wet conditions. Waterlogged soils are the key sources of methane, but that carbon is getting converted to CO2 and methane in all of these environments and warming conditions stimulate the microbial activities that lead to those products. That relationship between temperature and the rate at which they decompose and generate these gases is not a one-to-one relationship. It's what we call an exponential relationship. With each increase in temperature, we have an increase in those greenhouse gases that are multiplicative. So there is a concern across the globe that carbon conversion to greenhouse gases is increasing in all of these landscapes. The reason why the Arctic is so important is because of the amount of carbon that's stored there that has been relatively stable because of these cold temperatures. So the proportional increase in greenhouse gases coming from these processes on the landscape are going to be much larger from the Arctic than from other places around the Earth. So the change will come much more quickly because of the amount that's stored up there. Right, and the rates of change in temperature. So the rate of change in temperature in the Arctic is twice that of the rest of the Earth. So there's an amplification of warming in the Arctic that is an unfortunate factor in this story. But to dwell on places that aren't the Arctic for just another minute, because I'm wondering, are we between a rock and a hard place? Because if you take the example of wetlands, a lot of the same people who care about curbing climate destabilization care about the preservation of wetlands. Are we consigning ourselves to more greenhouse gases by protecting certain environments? I don't see it that way. 
they've been a part of the natural cycle of greenhouse gases and carbon on Earth uh, for a long, long time. And to mitigate climate change by going in and destroying landscapes seems to me the absolute wrong approach. What we should be focusing on is the ultimate source of the stimulation of warming in the atmosphere, which is the emission of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases from the use of fossil fuels. If we want to have a big impact on the long-term scenario that we've been discussing, we need to attack the largest source of greenhouse gases to the Earth's atmosphere, which is CO2 emissions from fossil fuel use. That could have a dramatic positive effects. So if we can turn that curve down, that emission of CO2 from fossil fuels, if we could get that curve to start to go down, then I think the positive results are going to accrue much faster than if we try to mitigate different landscapes. I don't think it's feasible. The aerial extent of these systems is just too large. And we're destroying ecosystems for the what we think is this greater good. I think that whole notion is fraught with problems. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. My guest on today's program is Jeffrey White. He's a professor of environmental science in the School of Public and Environmental Affairs and a professor of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences in the College of Arts and Sciences at IU Bloomington. There's a $10 word that I should probably get out at this point, which I know that you know well, anthropogenic. The, the real difference here between the natural carbon cycles that are best left to their own device and the ones that you're measuring in the Arctic, that the difference is us, that these are human-generated. Dusting off that fancy word, anthropogenic, I kind of wanted to ask you about one of its cousins. Um, what are your thoughts about us living in the Anthropocene? Is, is that where we are now? Are you one of those who believe that the natural order can't really be spoken of in quite the same way now because we live in the Anthropocene, the time of people affecting the planet. I do believe that that is the picture that we are facing now. And it actually has been ongoing for some time. Human civilizations on Earth have reached the point where they are altering on a large scale a host of processes in the biosphere, in the hydrosphere, in the atmosphere. These systems, these large global scale systems are being altered in significant ways by human activity of all sorts. So yes, I think that is the reality that we face. Humans, even though we look at our numbers relative to other organisms on Earth, have an inordinate effect on these large-scale global processes. I think one of the issues that we need to touch on is that, and, and you have a unique perspective on this, the Arctic, the Antarctic, these regions, I think for many people seem fictitious. They seem otherworldly somehow. They're not really on everyone's radar. 
the runoff from a factory in your local stream is a very different matter from what polar bears are going through for a lot of people. But you've been there, and you've been there often. So I was wondering if we could take a little more time to talk about the boots on the ground in Greenland. You've been going there for about an eighth of a blink of an eye in geological time, and you've given me a great idea through your descriptions of what you found through your research and what you have concluded from the results. But what would we find if we went there with you on your first visit and your most recent visit? What differences would we see with our untrained eyes? The biggest difference is the rapid retreat of the Greenland ice sheet. We were going in twice a year, and we would always take time to get up to that ice sheet, to the edge of that ice sheet, and walk on it and just get a sense of how far it had receded in a year. Hundreds of yards in a year. The second largest ice sheet on Earth. It's massive. It's 10,000 feet at the center. That's a couple football fields a year. Yes. Yeah. Not only is the edge receding, but the ice sheet is deflating. So there's a massive loss of water from that ground-based ice out to the ocean. So that you would notice. Um, You can see where it was last year. You can see where it is now. And if I could take you back there year after year, it would certainly leave an impression in your mind of, wow, this massive ice sheet is just going away. And that is true globally. Ice sheets around the world are rapidly deflating. It makes sense. If the Earth's energy system has an increase in the amount of energy that's being stored here, that energy is transferred to other things, soil, water, ice. And when you transfer energy to those systems, you cause these systems to warm, and in the case of ice, it melts, right? This is all, it all makes sense to us. I would say that's the probably the most obvious thing you would see. It does not take much training to see that. There are other things I could talk about that are obvious to people who spend some time in those landscapes. The local population, the Inuit populations have been noticing for a number of years that The key plants in the caribou migration are changing when they flower. So they're flowering earlier in the year, but the caribou migration has not changed its timing. So now we're getting out of phase where the caribou are showing up too late for the most nutritious part of the plant, which is that flower bud that forms in the early spring. And that's ecologists working on what effects that may be having on the survival rates of the young in the caribou populations. Those kinds of changes in ecological systems are also being observed. They're being measured. There's anecdotal evidence coming out of these communities that these systems are changing in important ways that matter to their lives. They still depend on traditional hunting. The long-term health of caribou herds is important to these indigenous people. Well, I'm a bit at a loss here because uh, the picture that you paint, to say the least, not particularly encouraging. And I can't figure out whether I should ask you what we should all be doing about this or whether I should be asking where you think things are going to be a few years down the line. What would you hope to leave people with? I think the most important message here is that we need to take actions in our own ways, whatever that is. Get involved in your local communities in ways that help to reduce our dependence on fossil fuels, to increase 
our efficient use of energy, to improve our use of energy. Lots of different ways that we can reduce our carbon footprint, each individually. That, I would say, we should all be doing. It's just, it's not only good sense environmentally, but it certainly helps in the pocketbook, right? It saves us money. So there are lots of things we can do individually as part of our local communities. So I would say people get engaged. This is an important issue. Complacency is a really dangerous thing. And I understand that humans, we all have a tendency to get a little complacent, particularly when a problem is so big and seems intractable. There's some comfort in just trying to ignore it because it's just too much to get your head around. I get that. So that would be my recommendation is get involved, become aware. This is not a time to despair. Yes, these are big challenges that we face, but inaction or complacency or sticking our head in the sand is just not the way to deal with this. Jeffrey White, I want to thank you for coming in and sharing your story and letting us know about your findings in the Arctic. Thank you so much for joining us on Profiles. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. I've been speaking with Jeffrey White, biogeochemist and professor of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences, about the effects of human activities on the ecosystems of the Arctic. Jeffrey White is professor of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences in the College of Arts and Sciences and is founding director of IU's Integrated Program in the Environment. I'm Aaron Kane. Thanks for listening. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.